All right. Good morning, Christ Church. I'm Pastor Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am glad to be in worship with you this morning. We are on week two of our sermon series, Kings and Kingdoms, taking a chance to look at uh, some of the characters from the narrative, from the scriptures, from the Bible, that specifically focus on a, a very short uh, time frame where God raised up specifically some kings and what that was like to form the kingdom of Israel. And so last week with Pastor Bob, uh, we had a chance to look at uh, Saul. If you remember, King Saul was the first king of Israel. And just as a recap for you, what happened is that uh, the people of Israel, God's people, the Jewish people got together and they were looking around at all of the other kingdoms, all the other nations, and they were saying, wow, they've got more power, they've got more money, they've got it going on. God, we want to be like those other kingdoms. And so God, in order for that to happen, we think that we should have a king. So give us a king, God. And God said, you know what? I thought I was your king, but you want a king? I don't know. Maybe not the best idea. And they're like, no, we want a king. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. And God says, be careful what you wish for. Okay. And so he gives them the king, and he gives them Saul. Saul is really this, this figure in the scriptures who is a king in the image of the kingdoms that they want to be like. He is head and shoulders taller than all the other Israelites. He's brawny and big, and he has long flowing hair, and he's got two big swords. You know, you get in the picture. Let me help you out. Pastor Bob uh, mentioned this last week. This is Saul, right? Somehow you didn't know this Brad Pitt was related as a distant relative to Saul. But this is Saul. He's like, man, he's dumb man. He's awesome. He's going to make our kingdom like all the other kingdoms around us. And Saul's life unfolds. At, at first he is in conjunction with who God is. He's in relationship with who God is. But then Saul makes some decisions, poor decisions, that begin to unravel his relationship with the living God. And as a result, because the king unravels his relationship with the living God, the kingdom, the people of Israel, feel that and also experience a similar unraveling of the relationship. And so God says, this is not good. Saul's going in a way we don't want to go. And so I'm going to retract or take back my blessing, my presence, and my spirit from Saul. And so he does that. God takes his blessing that he has placed on Saul back into his own person. And so Saul is left devastated. He sinks into deep depression. He makes worse and worse choices. It gets really bad really fast. God, however, out of grace and goodness, looks at the situation and says, you know what? Round one didn't go the way that it was planned. You chose your king in your image. I, as God, am going to look beneath the surface and find a king who is suitable for the kind of kingdom that I am going to build. And so God finds a new king in a very unexpected place to replace Saul. 
God comes to the prophet Samuel and says, Samuel, I've got a task for you. You're going to anoint the new king. I want you to go to Jesse. He's this guy hanging out in the town of Bethlehem. He lives there. I want you to go there. And one of his sons, one of Jesse's sons, is going to be my next king. I have prepared his heart, and I'm going to walk with him, and I'm going to be with this next king. And so Samuel goes over to Jesse's, knocks on the door, says, Hey, guess what? Good news. You're about to become royalty. I'm here to king. I'm here to bless and and make one of your sons kings. I'm here to anoint them. That was the fancy word. Anoint them as king. And so Samuel goes through all the sons and says, yeah, these aren't the ones God has in mind. Are there any more? They say, yeah, the runt of the litter is out back hanging out with the sheep. He's like, yeah, bring that guy. So he brings that guy. And in that moment, as the youngest son walks in, God speaks to Samuel and says, yes, this one. This youth of ruddy complexion this young man who has been with the sheep. He is to be the next king. Anyone know who who I'm talking about? What his name is? King David. You heard of King David before? How many of you have heard of King David? Yeah, a lot of hands. Okay, most, most of your hands up. Famous guy. I mean, even to this very day. I mean, the mere fact that I'm speaking about David testifies to how important he is in not only scriptural history, but in history in general. Don't they always have it on, like, National Geographic? David discovered, and then they do the specials. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you look at the current state of Israel, and when you look at the current state of Israel, you see a a symbol on their flag, and that symbol is referred to as the... Yeah, Star of David. This is an impressive and important figure who begins as nothing more than a shepherd boy. The way the scriptures describe it is this. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel meets David and he carries a horn of oil. This was very ritually symbolic. When a king was about to be pronounced king, you would pour oil over them as a sign, as a symbol, an anointing of what God has prepared for them. And this is what takes place. He, he, he kind of almost, it's almost like baptism by oil. He, he places it on David. And the Spirit of the Lord in that moment came mightily upon David from that day forward. The spirit that had retracted from Saul came to David in a special and significant, a mighty kind of way. And so this, King David, he and his God are going to create this story, this narrative that we get to walk through and see how he comes from shepherd boy to king over all Israel. We're going to try to do that in about two and a half minutes. Are you ready? The rise of King David in all of his life. It's incredible detail in the scriptures. I mean, this guy is such a fascinating character that there, there are so many different chapters written about him. I'm afraid we don't have time to go into all of them right now, but it's so good if we did. So here, this is just going to be a brief snapshot of how David began, where he started, in the kingdom 
that was built as a result of his life and his actions. So here you go. David starts off as a young musician watching the sheep. He's out back watching the sheep. He's got this talent with music. And as a result of this music, he actually makes a connection with the king, Saul. He gets a relationship with Saul because Saul goes into music therapy. And so uh, he actually shows up and he's the one to help provide that measure of comfort and, and help for Saul. All right, So there's a relationship there between Saul and David early on. Saul starts feeling better. He says, go back home, go back to your dad. So David goes back to his dad and his dad's like, oh, you know what? We should send care packages to your brothers out on the front lines. And so David packs up the mule with some, you know, food and socks and letters from mom. And he heads off to the front lines of the battlefield where his brothers are currently fighting for Saul. He shows up, and there's an army on one side and an army on the other side. And the bad guy army comes out. One guy comes out. He's a really tall, big, impressive-looking guy, you know. uh, And he threatens the other army, Saul's army, God's army, and says, Your God is not anything special. You're all a bunch of chickens. Send out a hero or a champion to fight me. And if he beats me, you'll win everything. It's winner takes all. Nobody from Saul's army is taking the guy up on his bet, except for David shares up with his little mule and his care packages and says, yeah, I'll fight the guy. Everybody's like, what? He's like, yeah, I'll do it. So little David goes out and he fights the guy, and this is called uh, the, the big battle between David and Goliath. Very good. Who wins? David. Very good. You know this. You remember this from flannel graphs in Sunday school, don't you, right? Yeah, so David fights Goliath and he wins. And so this all of a sudden makes a big change in David's life. He goes from shepherd to poster child, national hero, the man. Okay? David goes from this insignificant shepherd to, hey, David, you got it going on, man. You are awesome. Saw that with Goliath. Cool, dude. Super cool. Hashtag national hero. Okay? This is essentially what happens. His life goes from being very insignificant to having significant influence and weight with the regular populace. He grows in popularity. In fact, because he defeats Goliath, he gets to marry Saul's daughter. Whoa, he's now in royalty. He marries the princess, doesn't have to pay taxes anymore. Things are looking up for David right now, right? And in fact, because it seems like he's got this knack for military prowess, and so he goes off raiding with some of his buddies, and they start attacking the bad guys again, and he has nothing but success, but success and more success. David becomes a true national figure. In this process, he becomes so popular that the young ladies writing the songs of the day start writing about David. They say, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. You ever hear that before? Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. Well, how do you think Saul is feeling about all this? Not so hot. His son-in-law has such popular influence that Saul begins to have radical jealousy, bouts of rage and jealousy. And bear in mind, he's not in a healthy place. 
Saul has had God's hand taken away from him. God has said he's going to lose the kingdom. I mean, Saul's in a bad way, and now he's got this upstart young son-in-law. I mean, you think your, your relationship with your in-laws is tough? Whoa. Things get so bad with Saul and David, Saul actually picks up a spear and tries to spear David. David takes the message, runs out of the palace, and books it. He now goes from being national hero to on-the-run fugitive, outlaw. And he, he gets a group of guys together. He gets a group of merry, mighty men, if you will. Okay? The Bible actually calls them the mighty men of King David. And the mighty men of David run around, and he's like this outlaw on the run. Saul is still hunting him. But David continues as this, uh, almost like a warlord. He gets these guys together to succeed in battle. He does all these raiding and pirating, and he takes on the bad guys, and he wins, and he wins, and he wins, and he rescues people, and he helps people. His popularity only increases. It only gets better and better in terms of his influence. Well, despite the rumblings between him and Saul, Saul eventually does die. And this is the moment. The old king is dead. Everybody loves David. David, this is your moment. This is your chance to become king. His life just keeps getting better and better and better. The Israelite people, like the elders, come to him and say, David, here's the, king, here's the kingdom. Be our king. And they hand it to him on a silver platter. I mean, there's a, couple, there's a couple political assassinations. There's a couple maneuvering of the board pieces going on here. But all in all, end of the day, David gets to sit the Iron Throne, okay? He is now the king. David's life continues to get better and better and better. And yes, there's been struggles along the way. But God continues to bless him and pave the way until this moment, where he is now the king of Israel. He centers the political and military, the martial power in the city of Jerusalem. He centers the economic, uh, trade, all that. Everything is the religious significance. It gets centered in Jerusalem. This is why to this very day, Jerusalem continues to be such an influential city. It's because David set it up as a neutral site for his new capital. There's a lot of political tensions going on. He said, this is going to be my city. And so he sets Jerusalem up as the epicenter of Jewish life, the epicenter, the heart of the kingdom. And he ushers in a golden age. It lasts three decades. Israel as a whole as a result of its king, also rises in significance, importance, in wealth, and in influence. When you step back at this point, you would probably say, David, yes, you've had some ups and downs in life, but generally speaking, it's been pretty good, right? I mean, his life continues to get better and better and better. God's hand continues to provide for him and pave the way with specific intention to bring God's people to a place of a golden age. David sits back at this point 
He's now a grown man. He's the king. And in this moment, he looks at his life and he looks at the kingdom that he has built, the kingdom that's happened as a result of all of his effort and time and victories and battles. He's looking at his awards on the wall and he's thinking, wow, this is cool. I'm the king. And you know what? God has been there this whole time helping me out. I should do something nice for God. I should do something nice for God since I'm king. And so he says this. Now when the king, that is David, was settled in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, See now, I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. I've got this big palace with all these rooms and beautiful architecture. I'm the king. And you know what? God's, he's got, he doesn't have much in the way of a temple. He's just got a tent. That stinks. We got to give God a palace, a house of God's own. We should build a temple. That same night we get God's response to David. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Nathan is David's uh, priest in residence, prophet in residence. He's his go-to guy for everything God-related. The word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? Reality check, David. You are going to build me a house. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people up out of Egypt to this very day. I've been moving about living with them in a tent in the tabernacle. Where they go, I go. That's the whole idea of the tent camping thing. I have camped out and lived with my people. I've never had a permanent residence. I've never had to worry about that because I have been intentional about tenting, living, dwelling with my people. Wherever I've moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever ask, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, say, you know, why haven't you built me a house? No. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, David, remember, out of all the success in your life, as you sit now on your throne, remember, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince, remember that, prince over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies before you. I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of earth. Who's responsible for David's rise? Do you notice who's speaking? And they use the word I. So that would mean God. David, I took you. I'm behind this. And by the way, I made you prince over my people. If David is prince, who do you suppose is king? God? Absolutely. You see, David 
with how amazing and incredible your rise to fame and influence and wealth has been, as great as your life has been, David. I, God, I am the king. And I am the one at work through you. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. Evildoers shall not afflict them anymore as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people. I, God, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, moreover, not only will I do all of that in addition to what I have already done, but moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you, David, a house. This is a beautiful uh, Hebrew play on words. When you get to the word house, it can be translated in Hebrew as a couple different things. So when David says, I'm going to build you a house, God, God, he's got a great sense of humor. He says this, David, I'm going to make you a house. Another way of translating the word house is dynasty. Dynasty. So David, not, are you, not only are you not going to make me a house, David, you got this totally... If you think you're the hero of this story, David, if you think that you're responsible for everything that's taken place, David, let me give you a reality check. I, God, am the one working in you and through you. And I will continue to do so to such a significant degree that the best is yet to come. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I'm going to raise up an offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings. But I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. David. David, as great and as significant as your life has been, It pales in comparison to what I promise to accomplish through you for my name. Not a temporary kingdom am I building, but through you I will build a permanent kingdom. Through you, David, I will usher in the King of Kings. Who is God talking about in this? Come on, it's a Sunday school answer. You all know it. Shout it out. Jesus. Absolutely. Absolutely. God is promising David that 
David's life up until now, according to worldly standards, has been great. But God says, David, as great as you think your kingdom is, I promise to work in you and through you to bring about my son, Jesus the Christ, who will wear a crown of thorns, who will redeem my people as never before, who will lead my people as never before. I will establish his kingdom forever, and he will bear iniquity. He will have sin. Sin, not that he is responsible for. No, no, David. The sin of my people. And my own people will quite literally inflict punishment upon him with a rod such as mortals use. They will beat him. They will spit upon him. They will crucify him. But I will not take my love from him because what he is going to accomplish for you and for my people will last forever. David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne will be established forever. And in accordance with these words and with this vision, Nathan spoke to King David. Here's the reality check. David's significance his importance, the value and meaning that he derived from his life, the crowning moment of his life was not when he became king of the kingdom. The most significant moment in David's life is when God promised to bring the king of kings through him to make God's kingdom manifest in him and through him. The same is true for you and I. When we look at our lives and we examine the kingdoms that we've built, the awards that we've gathered together, the wealth, when we look at our lives and try to derive significance, don't we often compare ourselves to the other kingdoms around us? And yet God gives us a reality check. And he says, wait, for my people, the most significant moments in our lives are not when we are king or queen of this world, but when the king of kings comes to us and is made manifest in us. The most significant moments in your life are when Jesus Christ lives in you and through you. For us who are Christ's followers, for us who are part of David's lineage, his legacy, for us who are tied to the Scriptures... The greatness of our lives are not defined by the kingdoms that we build, but by the kingdom God builds through us. 
It is when we serve the underserved. When we bring hope to the hopeless. When we are generous with widows and orphans. When we are kind to those who need a kind word. It is when we receive Christ's forgiveness and know that we are citizens of heaven and share that grace and forgiveness with others. Our crowning moment, our significance, is found just like David in the promise and the person of Jesus Christ. There's more to say on David, but we'll get to that next week. For now, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the witness and life of David. Thank you for raising him up from humble standards to being king. And yet, even at his greatest moment of being king, you would give him a reality check, remind him of where he's come from, and promise something even greater still. Thank you for building your kingdom through David. And now, building your kingdom through us. Thank you for bringing Christ in us and through us.